Well, from about at least the time that he was 12 years old, Jesus was saying things that were difficult to understand. And for many of the people who knew him, they didn't quite understand fully why he said difficult things until after he was executed on a Roman cross and then came back to life three days later. It was then that people began to look back and and think to themselves, this truly was the Son of God in our midst. Or as the Apostle John said, this was the Word of God made flesh and dwelling among us. The voice of God speaking through human form and human language. And so when we take eternal truths and try to put them into timely words, there are going to be some things that just are difficult to understand. So, uh, first of all, it should be hard to to get what Jesus had to say because of simply by virtue of who he was and what he had to share with the world around him. So what we're doing in this series is we're looking at some of those hard sayings, and what we're learning is this. This is something Ben shared last week. When you come up against something Jesus said that is hard to understand, that isn't your cue just to go away and forget about it. That's your cue to lean in and really wrestle with it. Because as Ben said last week, growing, wrestling grows your strength. These, these moments where you have to wrestle with what Jesus said, it's often because there's this deeper, maybe more difficult spiritual truth that we would otherwise not ever get on our own. So wrestling grows your truth. And then if you're here for the first service last week, Ben kind of just made this off-the-side comment, which I don't think was scripted, but he kind of saw me in, in the seats, and so he said, oh yeah, and I think, Pastor Matt, didn't, weren't you a wrestler at one time? And so I'm like, yeah, I was. And so now I have to set the record straight. In high school, I was a wrestler because there were like 50 boys who went to my high school and they needed another guy to fill in a weight class. So my freshman year, I was recruited to join the the wrestling team. I didn't win a single match, but I did it all four years of high school and I learned a lot of valuable lessons through wrestling. Yes, it grows your strength. Now, I am so confident of who I am in Christ that I can share a picture with you of when I was in high school. This is how much I've grown and matured over the years. So here's me in high school. I'm not even going to tell you what NL stands for. You don't need to know. It stood for the school. But uh, anyway, so this was me back in high school. I think this was my sophomore year. And I just, as you look at that picture, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, okay, I, that's a wrestler that looks really similar to another wrestler that, that is out there. And <laughs> I'm here to tell you they are two different people. Two different people. This guy was actually my coach. So he was teaching me. All, no, just kidding. Um, so let's get those off the screen. So yes, I was a wrestler in high school. And one of the main things I remember from my high school wrestling career, learned a lot of things, but one of the main things I remember was there was this one wrestling meet in particular where I showed up and I was almost disqualified before I even wrestled. Now, if you're a wrestler, you kind of know this. You have to show up ahead of time for what they call the weigh-in process. And of course, you have to weigh in at a certain weight in order to wrestle in your weight class. And there's also a few other things that they check at the weigh-in. So they check your weight. They also check your fingernails to make sure they're not too long because apparently one time one guy's nails were too long and he clawed someone else and now they ruined it for the rest of us. But they check your fingernails and they also make sure that your hair wasn't too long. So I showed up for this meet. They're doing the weight. They're doing the fingernails. They're checking the hair. I failed all three. 
You remember that picture, right? <laughs> the beautiful long hair reminiscent of the 90s. I was a pound or two overweight, and so I was outside my weight class, and there was already another guy in that weight class from our team, so I, I had to lose some weight. So I look over at my coach, and he just rips his shirt apart. Like, he's angry because he's Hulk Hogan. Never mind. He lost it. <laughs> he, <laughs> I knew this was on me, and so I grabbed the nail clippers, clipped the nails. I grabbed a scissors and a bowl. <laughs> and I cut my hair. I cut the hair, and then I put on sweatpants. I put on sweatshirts. I'm running, running, running around inside in the gym, just um, losing all this weight through, through sweating. And I finally check in again, uh, last chance possible, and I made it in, just barely, just barely. Now, the reason that story came to mind was, number one, Ben sparked you know, an emotional moment for me, which I'm still trying to get over. And the other thing is because it really fits in with what we're going to dig into today with another hard saying from Jesus. You see, we get it when there's certain things you have to meet when it comes to wrestling. You have to meet a certain standard. But what we're going to see today is a big question revolving around what is God's standard for being with him in heaven? And why does he set it where it is? So I'm going to start off here but just by giving you the hard saying and then we're going to ask a couple of questions based on what this provokes from us. Now, before we do this, uh, my wife Amy reminded me we probably need to uh, make sure we're all on the same page. So Jesus is going to mention a camel, and I trust you all know what a camel is. It's a large animal. He's also going to talk about the eye of a needle. And the eye of the needle is that place where you put the thread in so that you can actually you know, use the needle to do sewing and stuff. So this isn't about poking uh, a camel's eye with a needle. That's different. That's what she thought of growing up. We're not poking camels in the eye. Here's what Jesus did say, though. He said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And you, if you just take that sentence all on its own and you start to dig into it, you're left with an uncomfortable conclusion. Can there be rich people in heaven? Someone in the first service said, yeah, I think they were rich. <laughs> but Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So can rich people even be in heaven? And here's where I want to set things straight because maybe if you're newer to church or returning to church, maybe one of your big things was that all you heard growing up is that money is evil and money is the devil, and so you should give all your money to the church, right? Because we can handle it better than you can, and that way you can get to heaven and be fine. That is not what Jesus is saying, and that's not what we're saying. In fact, fill in number one, this saying really isn't just about rich people. This isn't just about people who are rich. What we're going to see today as we unpack this section is that Jesus was equally speaking to people who were weak, people who were poor, everybody in between. And as we dive into this section here, what we're going to do is not just look at this one phrase because so often when you just look at one little phrase, you lose a whole bunch. We're going to look at the entire context where Jesus spoke this. And as it turns out, he was speaking to someone who's a lot like you. And the first thing I want you to know is that when you look at the history of Jesus' life, there were four main people in the first century who wrote down an account of his life, uh, and their accounts are now in the Bible today. So there was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all pretty similar. 
where about the same time they all wrote down an account and they basically covered the same stuff, although each from a different perspective. John was the weirdo. Um, he was old. And, and so he just kind of went his own path. And he knew the other three guys had already done their job. So he's like, I'll just fill in some of the other gaps. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recorded this event. They all recorded it because they all believed that the story of Jesus was not complete unless this story was included. This interaction between him and a man. Him and a person who's probably a lot like you. And the other thing to know about this story is that as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're going to look at Matthew's account, but when they recorded this event, it's as if they just place you in the crowd. You see this mysterious man come up and ask a question of Jesus. You don't know a whole lot about him because you've never met him before. But what we're going to do as we start out here is I'm going to fill you in on the front end of who this man was so that it will help you understand why Jesus addressed him the way he did. So if you're ready, I'm ready. We're going to uh, jump into Matthew chapter 19 and see how it is that Jesus began to talk about camels going through the eyes of needles. And we're about to see it's not just about people who are rich. Here's what, it, here's what he said. Just then a man came up to Jesus and he began to ask some questions. Now, as you fast forward, as you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you read the whole accounts, I'm sorry, not John, as you read through all the three accounts, we know three things about this man. Number one, he was young, which by those standards, I'm sorry, they didn't live to 80 years old back then, 80, 90, 100. Uh, old was like 50, 60. So if this was a young man, let's just say 20s, maybe early 30s. He was a young man, which means he had the drive, the, the, the uh, personal drive to want to go out there and change the world. You know, he, he had plenty of energy. He had physical strength, so he was a young man. Second thing we know about him is that he was a rich young man. Um, rich meaning that he had plenty of access to worldly wealth, so he was wealthy. The third thing we know about him is that he was also called a ruler, which means he had authority over people and authority over things, perhaps even authority over areas of land. We're not entirely sure. But he was healthy, he was wealthy, and he had authority. And in those days back then, if you were to see someone like that, young and wealthy and had authority, your the way they thought was, this man had the favor of God working for him. Of all the people in this village, this man must be favored by God the most. That was just the way they viewed wealthy, rich, young people back then. This man must be favored by God. So they said, this man must have an advantage over everybody else in the room. And so with that said, now you kind of know who this guy is and the perspective that people were looking at him with. And then he, as he goes forward to Jesus, he asks this question, which turns out to be the wrong question, but it leads us to one of the most difficult things that Jesus had to say. A man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Religious rabbi, I'm, I'm many things, but I'm no rabbi, I'm no spiritual leader, so tell me. With all my wealth and all my health and all my authority, what good thing must I do? Which bucket should I pick out of to do some good, great thing for God so that I will be welcomed into eternal life when I leave this world? And it's a fair question. It's a good question. What must I do to get eternal life? This was the wrong question, though. And Jesus is going to redirect him just a little bit. 
Jesus responds to this question with a better question. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? In the Greek, the emphasis is, the emphasis is on that word good. Like, why are you bringing up this topic of being good? There's only one who is good. So we're in the territory where you don't deserve to be dabbling in this or asking questions about this. What you're about to ask is something that is impossible. But since you're asking, if this is the route you want to go, here's the right answer to the wrong question. He continues, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And it's like he drops the mic, boom, that's all there is. It's not that complicated. And here's maybe the complicating part. The commandments, what he referred to was the law of Moses, where over about 2,000 years before, Moses had given all these laws, all these commandments. God had given them to the Israelites through Moses. And it was both a moral code and a law code and a ceremonial code. Like this was the constitution for Israel. This was their national constitution, but it also included a whole bunch of different categories. So there was the ethics part where we know like the Ten Commandments, do this, don't do that, be kind to your neighbor. There was the law part where it said, here's how you're going to handle the judicial system and the sentencing process. And then there was the spiritual part where it talked about ceremonies and how to do sacrifices and when to meet for festivals and, and stuff like that. And so Jesus said, keep the commandments. And so the guy replies back with a very honest question, which ones? <laughs> which ones are we talking about here? Because there's a whole bunch to choose from. And I don't know if you know this, Jesus, but we're not exactly a nation anymore because Rome has come in. And so, well, which ones? And so Jesus gets real with him. He says, you're looking for your checklist of things you have to do to be good? Here they are. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And then it's almost as if Jesus steps back and he says, we're going to be here all day if I keep going through all the commandments. So I'll summarize them with this one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the body of commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as we'll see in a little bit, this guy is thinking through his mind, I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I haven't stolen I haven't stood up in court and given false testimony against anyone. I think I'm good. But here's where, when you look at what else Jesus had to say, you see that it's not just the outward action that God is looking for. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer in God's eyes. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't even think lustfully. That is same as the act of committing adultery. And then you, you zoom out on the rest of it and you see the incredible, incredible standards that God places for those who want to enter heaven. Jesus summarized it well in another place with two words, be perfect. My question is, why make heaven so hard to get into? Let's say that you're throwing a, a dinner party do we still call it that, a dinner party? I don't know if we do. Um, but if, let's say you're throwing a party. Just call it a party. And you want to invite your friends over, but then you list a bunch of stipulations. You say, hey, you should come on over. Um, men, you have to wear a charcoal suit with a tie and a double Windsor knot. 
and uh, you have to rent a Porsche if you want to be anywhere near my house. And women, you have to wear a black skirt or black dress that's no more and no less than two inches above the knee. And if you're getting a babysitter for the night, there's only one place to get a babysitter from, and they charge $500 an hour. And uh, welcome, come on in. That would be ridiculous. So why is it then that God sets such a high standard when it comes to bringing people into his presence and his heaven? If he was a loving God, wouldn't he set the standard really low so that only the really bad people stay out and thus us with good intentions can make our way in? And by the way, with this question, I've heard, unfortunately, a lot of bad answers given. Uh, one bad answer would be, well, it's, it's God's heaven, so he can do whatever he wants. That's like saying, well, it's my house, so I can set the rules for, for what gets you in the door or not. Or it's like some bully on the playground who says, no, you can't play on this unless you pay me five bucks. It sounds like this some mean old version of God who's just setting, the, setting the, these crazy rules that mean nothing in the end. I've also heard this one. Well, God doesn't want us to ruin his perfect heaven. And my idea is, if, we, if his heaven is so delicate that we could ruin it, I don't know if I should be there to begin with. Why does God set such high standards for someone to be able to enter his presence? And the answer isn't because he's some mean old guy who just sets arbitrary rules. The answer is more a matter of necessity. You see, here's how we are. Everyone, regardless of, of church background, we all recognize that there is an amount of inherent evil in the world. We don't have to learn how to be bad people. That's natural. But what the Bible adds to that and what Jesus added to that is that it's more than just we have a problem. It's that we are spiritually dead. We have this sinful nature, which may, might not manifest itself the moment we're born, but as soon as we gain the capabilities and the abilities of our body and our, our, our mouth and our words, we are really showing the sinful nature that we have. And you look at the opposite. You look at who God is. He is perfect. He is holy. He's righteous. He's sinless. And the best way I can, I can communicate this to someone, like why does God set the rules the way he does? It's because of another picture that the scriptures use to describe the difference between us and God. It describes God, who is righteous and holy, it describes that as him being light, like a light source, a bright light, the sun, something. And then it describes our sinful condition as being darkness. We're born in a dark world and we ourselves are darkness. And quick science lesson here. If you try to take darkness and expose it to light, what happens? The two cannot coexist. Light and dark cannot coexist just as sinful and perfect cannot fully coexist. They are incompatible. The light will destroy the darkness. And so instead of God saying, hey, go ahead and give it your best shot. We'll see what happens when you show up. God says, no, I love you too much. I will give you laws and commandments that demonstrate for you and show you how different we are. And to people like the rich, young ruler, sometimes the lesson had to sink in a little bit further. What good thing do I have to do was the wrong question. But Jesus gave the right answer. You need to be perfect if 
That's the route you want to take. So as Jesus continued conversing with this rich young man, this rich young ruler, the the guy was listening, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. He's like, check, check, check. I'm all weighed in, good to go. And he replies to Jesus, I've kept all these. I'm good. I'm perfect. What do I still lack? Because I think everyone around you here needs an object lesson in what perfection looks like. So he's pointing to himself, what do I still lack? And then Jesus just gets real with him. Perhaps Jesus is looking at all these poor people, these homeless people, these hungry people, and here's this rich young man saying, I've loved my neighbor perfectly. Then Jesus just drops this bomb on him. He says this, if you want to be perfect, go sell, give, come, and follow. Go sell your possessions and give it to the poor, being mindful that you have an amazing treasure waiting you in heaven that far outweighs anything you could possibly give in the meantime. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Go sell, give. Then come follow. Because being in heaven isn't about what you do or what you give. It's more about who you are with. And right now, this man's possessions and his money and his wealth were getting in the way of the one person who could help. When the rich, when the rich young man heard this next verse, he went away sad because, now, now Matthew lays it on you, here's the bottom line, because he had great wealth. And here was a man who had every advantage in the world, but... In the face of Jesus, he recognized there was one thing that he was not willing to part with and one thing he was not willing to do. So the question has to come back to you. If Jesus were to come up to you today and ask the same question, how would you go away? Would you part with your money to be with him? Would you part with a relationship to be with him? Would you give away your car? Would you give away your house? Not that he would ask you to do that, and that's not what this text is about, but it gets you thinking, doesn't it? Would I go away sad too? And then as Jesus sees all the people around him saying, whoa, and this guy's going away sad, they're thinking to themselves, what does this mean for me? Do I have to give away all my stuff? Uh, is, is this like the entry requirement that we haven't heard about yet, that we have to be like poor and penniless? And so as Jesus is looking around at the room or at the people around him, he says, this is a teaching moment. Jesus turned to them and he said to his disciples, truly I tell you, It is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, both because their wealth gets in the way, but he was saying something even deeper than this. The person with the most advantage in this life will have great difficulty making it to heaven. To which the people thought, how then? How then? Can there be hope for us? So he uses this analogy. He says, well, let's, here's the hard saying. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some some people have tried to downplay it to say the Greek word he meant to use is really similar to camel, but it actually means like a thick anchor rope. Uh, Some people try to downplay it by saying that there was a certain uh, gateway going into Jerusalem called called the needle and, and so to, to go to, for camels to go through there, they had to unpack all their stuff first because it was so small. But here's the thing. Jesus was being deliberately ludicrous. That's what his intention was, to demonstrate the difficulty with which a rich person would have to enter the kingdom of God. And the thing that set for the people who were listening to this wasn't, 
oh, we got to get rid of our wealth. The question was, if this person who had every advantage in the world will only enter with great difficulty, then what is true of us? This is what the disciples said in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they, they didn't ask, well, how will rich people be in heaven? They said, well, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? If this guy can't make it, then who can? So the better question isn't, can there be rich people in heaven? The better question is, can there be anyone in heaven? To which Jesus gave a surprisingly equally shocking response. And he says, fine, if this is the path you want to pursue, to be good, to do good, to enter heaven, he says this, with man, this is impossible. You cannot make a camel go through the needle's head and have a whole camel come out the other side. You cannot try to do good and enter yourself into God's presence because all you will do is be darkness in the presence of light. This is impossible. And sometimes that's just what we need to hear. Throughout Scripture, you, you see people ask the question, what must I do to be saved? How do I get to heaven? And you see two very different answers. You see the answer that Jesus gave, which is be perfect. And if you want to pursue that path, there's this one thing you need to know. It's not going to work. But thankfully, there's another answer too. The answer lies in who you're with more than what you do. And if you go with what you do, Number three, you just have to know that mankind's best attempt to be perfect will have tragic consequences when darkness tries to enter the presence of him who is light. And so as Jesus is landing the plane, he's like, man, these guys are totally toast now. Uh, he just preached them into a very somber, a very bad place. But I'll tell you what, this is so important for us to this day to really let sink in. Why should you be in heaven? What's your advantage? Are you a rich person? Are you wealthy? Are you a people person? What's your advantage? That God is looking down from heaven and saying, man, I can't spend eternity without them. Come on in. This makes you pause and acknowledge the fact that your best attempt to be pleasing to God will have tragic consequences. With man, this is impossible, but Jesus ended with some good news. Jesus turned to them. He said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I just showed you a dead end of what happens when you try to do good and enter heaven that way, but I'm showing you a different way, a way that does not depend on the good you do, but on the good that God did for you. See, here's the different path. Here's the different way. The darkness that we could not change the lifelessness that we had no power to resurrect, that was all changed for you through Jesus Christ. The punishment that should have annihilated us in the presence of God was poured down onto Jesus Christ in your place, and he died for that. He died for that, a physical death. And then to prove that he had paid every last penny of your debt before God, he came back to life proclaim to you that with him you'll enter life too not because of the good you do but because of the good he did for you so here's my closing question for you what do you have that most people don't are you the rich person are you the ruler 
Are you the young person? What do you have that most people don't? And by the way, if your income is more than $32,400 per year, you are technically in the 1% top category of wealthy people in the world. So there's that measure. If Jesus were to come before you today and call you out, what would he call you out for? What is the thing that you've been thinking, God must look with favor on me, he can't wait to have me with him. If it's anything you do, I want you to know that will have tragic consequences. And here's the thing, even for Christians in the room, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, we get into these mindsets where we're like, oh, God must be angry at me, God must be upset at me because my behavior was this. And I'll tell you what, yes, when we sin, that's not pleasing to God because that means we're turning from him. But his pleasure for you, his favor for you was determined at the cross, not at your behavior. His pleasure and favor for you has already been sealed. What advantage do you have? What do you think God must love you for? Would you think about that this week? And then would you do what that rich young man should have done? Number four, would you simply surrender it? Surrender it. I'm so rich, but that's not where my comfort, that's not where my peace comes from. By the way, uh, the Apostle Paul had Timothy command rich people who follow Jesus. He didn't command them to give away their money and get rid of it. He commanded them to not find their hope or confidence in the money. If you're a rich person, you don't have to get rid of your money, but would you surrender that as a way to get to God? And then leverage it to bring others. What is your advantage? Do you have a lot of time that most, most people don't? It's not that the way you spend your time makes God more or less pleased with you, but the way that you leverage it and you surrender it for his glory honors him. You were darkness, but now you are the light of God in this world because of what Jesus did for you. And as you consider what that means in your life, I simply pray today that God would give you the wisdom to look at the things you've been holding on to in your life, whether it's an idle thing or simply a thing that you thought God loved you for and say, that's not what he loves me for. Jesus is what he loves me for. And in the meantime, I will gladly surrender everything that I might have if it makes me more sure of what he's done for me. Hope you can join us back again next week. We're going to further the discussion about what hard things Jesus said and get a bigger glimpse about what it means to believe and have faith. So let's close today with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I think it goes without saying, a lot of us might connect a lot with that rich young man where we can so easily look at our abilities and our power because we live in a nation that's just filled with wealth. And some of us might be wondering, well, what does that mean for me then? I pray that you would simply, the one thing I hope for is to give us a shift in the way that we think about those things. That's not where our power is. That's not where our comfort is. That's definitely not where our peace comes from because sometimes more money just leads to less peace. But I pray that you would shift our focus off of what we do and shift it onto who we are with. The word of God became flesh, made his dwelling among us so that he could take away our sin and give us this gift of life. Let all of our weight lean on that so that one day when we show up at your gate, we would be welcomed in not because of what we've done, 
because we stand there robed in the righteousness that Jesus lived and died to give. I pray all these blessings for everyone here in Jesus' name.